Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 7investing.com podcast. Our mission at 7investing is to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing a ton of free educational content like this podcast and by offering a monthly subscription service where our team of advisors provides our seven best ideas in the stock market each month for just $17. If you are a somewhat regular listener to this podcast, you know that we mostly talk about um, investing in the financial sense and investing in things like public companies. And we've even had, we've even talked about venture capital, but our families and specifically our kids are another area where um, I believe it's very important to invest. And so almost out of my own desire, I reached out to Jessica Leahy and asked her to be a guest on the podcast because um, Jessica, I, I can't think of a better person, at least not anybody that I follow or that I know than you to talk about this. Um, so I'm going to introduce you yeah. real quick. And then I would yeah, love for you to say hello to everybody. Um, Jessica is a teacher, a writer, and a mom. Over 20 years, she has taught every grade from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools. She writes a lot, and she writes about education, <laughs> parenting, and child welfare for the Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. And she's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, which for anybody watching the YouTube video, I have it here and she has it behind her. And the, the tagline is how the best parents learn to let it, uh, to let go so their, ch their children can succeed. Um, she's a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leader Board and wrote the education curriculum for Amazon Kids, The Stinky and Dirty Show. We love that show in our house, <laughs> Jessica. Um, Good. There's some more stuff in the bio, but the last thing I wanna hit on for your bio is that you have a second book coming out. Uh, mm -hmm. The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence, which will be released in April of 2021. So Jessica, yeah. thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I love love talking about kids. I, uh, I miss, I, you know, we're all kind of isolated right now. And so having the opportunity to, you know, do a little bit of teaching and do a little bit of talking about what's great for kids is, makes me really happy. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm excited. So I'd love to start. Um, I watched a keynote of yours and you talked about how you had your life planned out when you were 25 <laughs> years old in law school. Don't then, we all, uh, 20 year olds, 20 to 30, we're pretty sure we have it all figured out. I have everything figured out. I don't know what, <laughs> uh, no, I'm totally kidding. Um, but then a different opportunity came up and you decided to take an opportunity to teach gifted kids in middle school. So why would somebody that was on track to be a lawyer and probably make a lot of money? Uh, why would you decide to start teaching? My mom's a teacher, so I know, I know what that life is like. So why, would, why did you make that decision? To, to well, first, let's take the finances out of it, because I was going to be working um, on the local level in juvenile court. So I was not going to be making a lot okay. of money. <laughs> yeah. I was in it. I was in law school for um, to work with kids. I was going I had a job sort of all I had all scoped out. I had a mentor. She was becoming a judge. She was moving away from the um, juvenile court. I was hoping to take her place as the assistant district attorney in juvenile court. And, uh, you know, I was asked to teach by someone, um, a teacher of mine, my actually my legal writing professor asked me about whether I'd be interested in teaching a course over at the Duke um, Talent Identification Program. And at first I said no, because I was on track to graduate early from law school by going to school in the summer. And I just, and I was pregnant at the time. So I really did need to graduate early. And I don't know what 
I don't know what I was thinking, but I did it. And I, you know, I came home after that first day of teaching and I just knew I, I was positive. In fact, it was so clear that I knew I was going to be a teacher that my husband just saw it on my face. And he, you know, the joke I, I always make about this is he looked at me and he said, are you even going to finish law school? It was so, I was radiating. I was just glowing and it wasn't just that I was pregnant. So you know, that was a, it was a really important moment for me. You know, I was sort of becoming a mom and becoming a teacher in the same year. And, and that has really, that confluence has really dictated much of what I've done with my career and my writing life. Yeah. And um, I, I think with your career and with a lot of careers, kind of like we were teasing about earlier, we feel like we have things figured out and then all of a sudden we do something. Yeah right place, right time. And we mm -hmm. really find our passion and, and what we want to do with our lives. And it, it sounded like from hearing you talk about it and from what you just said, that that is yeah. exactly what happened. Well, I also, I'm also a big fan of sort of the, the winding road towards figuring out what you want to do. I've done a lot of different things. I worked in right out of college. I worked in mutual funds. Um, I worked in, I've been a, peach, a speech writer for a U.S. Uh, governor. I've worked uh, helping assess kids for uh, sexual and physical abuse. I've worked in juvenile court. So there's been so many cool things I've gotten to do. I was a researcher at one point for the Centers for Disease Control for um, Pediatric HIV when that first was happening. And so it's been, but what's been so amazing about that trajectory is that every piece of that has given me some insight into what I do, what I love. Um, and each one of those things was exciting when I first started, but then you sort of figure out what you're good at and what you want to do. And you finally piece it all together. And here I am getting to write at the very nexus of all the things I care about most, which is helping kids become their best, truest selves and helping them develop their voice and helping education be as good as it can be and um, writing a lot about child welfare and juvenile justice so that, you know, all of those pieces have been so worthwhile because they all, you know, I never practiced law, but I still write about juvenile justice all the time. So there, I love that uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of David Epstein's book Range for that mm -hmm. reason, in the sense that I think, you know, I'd love to shift over from the word dilettante to the the word sort of, you know, for having a wide range of interests and knowledge that that feed each other. Yeah. And an interesting thing that you said in your keynote was that you still finished law school. Um, mm -hmm. and I specifically remember you saying that uh, you started it, so you wanted to finish it. And in it, in my head, it um, there's people that have different takes on that. Like, should mm -hmm. we finish things we start or, you know, everybody has a different take. So uh, just curious to hear your thoughts on mm -hmm. that. And then also the yeah. same thing with, with kids too. Like, like, when do you finish something that you started versus maybe reconsider and think, okay, uh, maybe this isn't something that I, I should finish. Yeah. It's kind of a broad question, but... No, it's, I get, I get that question a lot. The whole letting kids quit thing. I think it's a sort of a different question when you talk about law school, because at that point, um, I was really fortunate at that point, we did have to move. And so I had to go visit at another school in order to finish at University of North Carolina. They were really supportive in that. I just, I love school. I mean, I love the exercise of, especially law school, because law school teaches, I'm not the natural sort of thinker that one would point out and say, oh yeah, you should go to law school. I'm not a really sort of linear, or I wasn't anyway, a really linear process-based thinker. I'm one of those people who, you know, would raise my hand in class and open my mouth and just hope something that made sense came out. Whereas um, law school really helped me 
uh, it's uh, there are so many writers that I respect and love their process, especially as journalists who have been lawyers. Actually, my former editor at the New York Times was one. Some of my favorite writers right now actually were former lawyers, mainly because it allows you to really think along a trajectory and come up with you know the the devil's advocate sort of both sides of it and come up with a really great argument for your point. So. You know, that was all really worth it for me. And at that point, you know, once you get to the point where you've only got, I think I had three semesters left at that point, and I was able to finish them doing, you know, a bunch of creative cobbling. <laughs> and, you know, once I had my kid and it was just fun for me, it was uh, learning for me is play and it's hard sometimes. I mean, I had to take a lot of classes and stuff that was really difficult for me, but in, but I love that challenge. That's one of my favorite. I would, I probably would just be in school and I guess that's what I'm doing. I mean, honestly, as I write these books, you know, I, I was interested in the topics behind gift of failure. I became interested in um, substance abuse, both through my own recovery and through the fact that I was teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab for kids. And so the addiction inoculation came out of that. So essentially, I find these things that I'm really fascinated in. I get to read everything in that topic. Um, sort of break it all down, find the landscape in my head and find a way to translate it for people who don't want to do all the technical reading. It's, it's like this incredible um, place of being just a big research geek and a translator and a writer. I love it. It's one, it's just, it's the perfect job for me. Yeah. And that, and it's so true is um, all the time and effort that you or anybody has, has, that's done well with a book that has put into it. Books can take a, a long time to read, but when you think about it, <laughs> you're able to cram, you know, years of research yeah. into this book and then kind of consolidate it and organize it for people, which actually saves them a lot of time to learn deeply yeah. about a topic from the work that you put in or, or another author put in. Well, and that's, that's also a place of trust because in order to be a good source of information for you, the reader, I have to do all of my due diligence and it helps that I'm married to a statistician. So every once in a while I'll sit down with a study and I'll say, you know, I really want to mention this study, but I'm not, it just seems a little shaky to me. And I can go to him, show him this study and he'll say, oh, you know, you can't talk about that one because look at these confounding issues, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we were talking about this before we went live is that um, the process of writing a nonfiction book for me anyway, to do it the way I feel I have to do it to have it be really good and to be solid on a research from a research perspective is, um, you know, this last book, the substance abuse book, um, The Addiction Inoculation, it took me a whole year to write the proposal before that even went to my editor. And that was because for me to even get my arms around the topic um, took me a full year. And then I start the writing process and that process takes a year, year and a half. And then the editing, you know, all that other stuff that comes after. So I started this book. I got the idea for this book about four years ago and, um, and, you know, have been whittling away at it ever since. And so it'll be out in, in April. It was supposed to come out this fall, but we decided the election would not be, <laughs> the election season would not be the best time to release any book right now. So, um, so I'm really glad it's coming out in April, but that's, like I said, that process is really special to me. Um, it's, it's a huge place of privilege for, for you to open a book and then, you know, find something that is interesting to you and quote it, because that means you have faith in me that I have done my work well and had fact-checked every single angle on it. So it's a lot of pressure, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And your website, uh, jessicalahey.com and last name is L-A-H-E-Y. 
people can buy either of your books there and then you've got links to where they can get them on Amazon. Um, so check out um, Jessica's website if you, if you want to look at either of her books. So I talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, right now, a lot of people are in this situation we've never been in bef before where one, I think we're starting to appreciate teachers a lot more than ever before, probably because we've been thrust into this role where we're almost like part-time teachers as well are trying to help out. My, <laughs> yeah. my son started school uh, two weeks ago or, or last week. He's in kindergarten and he, he's doing the first nine weeks virtually. And then the plan would be for him to go back to school. Um, and so my wife and I find ourselves, we switch off depending on who's working, sitting there and we've got to be there to help them get logged mm -hmm. into class and then listen to what the assignments are. And I, again, I, I've read your book and I've read reviewed notes and taken notes and I'm all about uh, letting not only kids, but people fail and learn from their failures and stuff. But I still find it really, really hard yeah. to know when my kid is, is, has an assignment and homework because um, mm -hmm. I'm not a teacher. How, how do I help him without crippling him and giving him the, the learned dependency? So we'd love to kind of frame the discussion about, about raising resilient kids and, and letting kids fail around sort of our current mm -hmm. environment of we're in this yeah, position thank, where we're like, thank teaching goodness. Them. Thank goodness I did not have to write that book mid-pandemic. I mean, it's a completely yeah. different thing. The other thing I had to do with writing that book is there's a lot of stuff we do in education to begin with that is a disaster for learning. But I couldn't, you know, write The Gift of Failure and say, hi, in my fantasy world where everything is fantastic, where we don't give a lot of homework and where we don't do these big summative exams, um, here's how to handle that fantasy world of mine. Well, that's not very helpful. So I had to sort of go at it from the perspective of here's where we are. And, you know, I, I think right now is a really difficult time, mainly because let me, let me flip it on its head. When I go, I get to usually when we're in a non-COVID situation, I'm usually on the road for a huge chunk of the year doing professional development for teachers, working in schools, talking to kids, talking to parents. And I can tell you right now that when I talk to teachers, they're often um, amazed by how hard it is to take the tools we have as teachers that we know work for learning, that are evidence-based tools, you know, great for learning, and use those with our own kids. So like there's a wall in our brain and it's hard for us to see both sides. And so, and that's under normal circumstances. And that's with some self-awareness of, oh, I do know all this really good stuff and yet why is it so hard for me to use it? Now flip that on its head and suddenly you have parents who don't have training in all of that stuff that we know works for kids um, and being asked to somehow be good at that too. It's an impossible situation. So I think the best advice I can give parents right now is to sort of envision the teacher that you learned the most from. And it probably was not a teacher who, when you raised your hand or when you felt stuck, just gave you the answer, right? Because that's that's terrible teaching and it's it's terrible for learning. What works really, really well for learning is helping guide kids toward their own discovery of the answer. And especially when a task is slightly just a hair beyond the ability level of the kids. So that's why, you know, we leave a math teacher, for example, might leave the most challenging problems for the end of the problem set because they want to stretch you at the end. The most learning 
happens in those stretch moments. So as a parent, if you can just remember that, this thing called desirable difficulties, which is learning something that's just a little difficult for you to parse and get in your head, that that's good. Desirable difficulties are really great for learning. That handing our kid, kids don't just like upload, you know, it's not like we can download what's in our brain and that they'll just suck it up and suddenly it's there. That's not how learning works. So the more we can sort of step back and lead kids in the direction of figuring out the answer for themselves, the better. Um, it's not going to be our job to, you know, reteach all of Algebra 1 because they can't figure this one algebra problem out. It is good for us to go maybe look at a problem that they did do well and say, okay, well, let's look at what you did on number four. Why are you not replicating that same process here with problem two? Or what's different about problem two and from problem four that means you'd have to change your approach? That kind of reflection back, sometimes all they need, honestly, <laughs> often what will happen is a kid will raise their hand and they're like, Mrs. Leahy, Mrs. Leahy, I can't do it. I'm stuck. And our job at that point is honestly just to stand there and have them tell us what they think the problem is, what they think the issue is, what they think the question means, to read the directions again, reflect to us what they think they're supposed to do. And I'm going to tell you eight times out of 10, they're going to say, oh, never mind, I just figured it out myself. So being more of a silent sort of place for someone to just voice what they think they're supposed to do, someone who can look with fresh eyes at um, what they've done and maybe how they can um, alter what they're doing based on what they've done in other spots. Um, but often, you know, we want to just fix it because that's easier and it's faster and it makes our kids stop saying, I'm so dumb, I don't know what to do. And, you know, if we can just make them stop that, then they can feel good and smart about themselves and have good self-esteem. But unfortunately, that's not how self-esteem works. So, yeah. yeah. So I've found, my wife and I have found ourselves talking to each other about this and we know it's the wrong way to look at it, but we <laughs> do it anyways. Right. And I would just love to hear your opinion on this. Um, so we see our son's work and we, you know, we submit it, we take pictures of it and you submit it. And I think eventually mm -hmm. we're going to get some type of feedback or grades back from the teachers. But a couple of times we said, well, I wonder how this compares to what the other kids are doing. And I yeah. know that that is the, the wrong way to look at it, but it's, that temptation is there. So I guess, A, is that the wrong way to look at it? Mm -hmm. And you won't hurt my feelings if you tell me yes. And then B, what, what would the right approach to that be? Because we want our kids to succeed, right? Right. Okay. So first of all, how the other kids are doing on it for your purposes is totally irrelevant because so there are a few things we know work really well for teaching. And one of them is this thing called formative assessments. And formative assessments are every day, some sort of low stakes assessment to figure out where the kid is in the learning. And if you think about it, these assignments are homework in its most ideal form, if there is such a thing, that's what those are, right? So your kid doing things to the best of their ability and being in charge of articulating back to the teacher what they don't understand, that's the best and highest use of an assignment or a homework assignment or whatever that thing is that you're handing back in. And just, just so you know, by the way, homework or assignments like you're talking about when you said hopefully it'll get some feedback on it, um, research is really clear that if you don't, if your kid doesn't, and when I say you, I mean your kid, not you, your 
your kid, if your kid does not get feedback on that assignment, it is not a very useful assignment. It's not much better than a, a waste of their time. Um, the, the, the feedback matters a lot. So, and what that feedback looked like and all that sort of stuff. Um, so for you, from your perspective, honestly, the best possible thing is that you have no idea how all the other kids are doing yeah. because it's, it is irrelevant for your kid unless, of course, unless your kid has some major learning disability and that's, and needs to be assessed and isn't being assessed. That's a massive issue too. But I'm assuming since you didn't mention it, that that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, where my kid is. And the, your need to understand that is natural because given that we don't get report cards on our parenting, the next best thing as a parent is to see a report card on their performance, right? So that we can co-opt that as some evidence of our success or failure. But if you turn that on its head again, and, and I need to stop using that phrase, if, if you think about it, that doing that to your kid is super unfair because they are not an extension of your parenting. They're their own person. And if you're co-opting their successes and failures as your own, it's not only unfair to you, it's unfair to them. So stop doing that. And if they were in my classroom and they do that thing where they start comparing notes like, oh, how'd you do? Oh, how'd you do? Yeah. All that does is foment um, competition, which for some kids is great, but for a lot of kids is a really um, negative factor on performance. Um, the adding competition in actually for many kids can lower their performance because mastery and speed or mastery and um, you know mastery of a concept doesn't have a lot to do, number one, with who, how everyone else is doing, and it doesn't have anything to do with like how fast they can do it, that kind of thing. So yeah, shouldn't matter yeah. to you. Yes, think I, that's <laughs> what we that's what we thought. It's hard though; these things are yeah. hard. Um, yeah. But it's that's well, and if you're hard. unsure, and if you're unsure of where, if you really need to know. In a couple of weeks, go to the teacher and say, you know, it's really weird to not have a sense of where my kid is, but I'm assuming yeah. your kid's pretty young because you're saying you have to sit there with them when they do this stuff. At this point, really, I have to say until high school and even then, I don't think it matters. It really is irrelevant to you where your kid is relative to other kids unless the teacher is worried that there's a problem. So staying on the topic of school and you've um, you've written about this and I've, I've heard you talk about it, but um, getting kids excited for school. So getting kids excited for school requires that you get them excited um, from an on an intrinsic level that you're getting their sort of, you know, when you watch your kid and they're doing something like Minecraft or Legos or whatever, reading something that they're really, really into and they're not doing it for a grade. In fact, if you were to assign that same book, they probably would be like, I don't want to read that. Forget it. But if it's something of their own choosing, they're going to be a lot more likely to be invested for the sake of the thing itself. And so the analogy I give is, you know, if it's really cold outside and you have a toddler, you don't say to your kid, you know, do you want to wear a hat? You give them limited choices within the framework of it's kind of important to wear a hat today. So um, would you like to wear the red hat or the blue hat? And that gives them some buy-in and that also allows them to feel like they have a little bit of control. And anyone who's ever been around a toddler knows that that lack of control is what makes them often insufferable um, yep. because they just, they have control over nothing and yet they want control over everything. So the more control we can give them over the small things, the more likely we're, we're going to be to get buy-in. The one thing to remember is that if you want to undermine their excitement and enthusiasm for something, it's 
through those extrinsic motivators, whether that's paying kids for grades, whether that's sticker charts, whether that's um, you know, punishing kids for, um, for not having a high enough GPA, whether that's surveillance, watching them on their phones, whether that's surveillance going on the portal and looking, you know, and looking at their grades all the time. All of those things are extrinsic motivators and they work really well in the short term and they're a disaster over the long term. And that's not me. That's 40 years of really good research. Go read Edward DC's Why We Do What We Do, The Science of Self-Motivation. Go listen to Dan Pink's TED Talk. Um, go read um, Martin Seligman's work in positive psychology. All that research, 40 years of research, shows that extrinsic motivators trying to get kids by dangling a carrot and stick does not work over the long term. If you want your kids to not want to learn math, pay them for their math grades. It's pretty clear. So intrinsic motivation, that's where it is. That's where the good yeah, stuff is. I think you said extrinsic motivation destroys uh, confidence and creativity or maybe it was competence and creativity uh, yeah extrinsic that... motivators it destroys it what it does is it whittles away at kids motivation to do something over the long term and it also is really destructive to creativity uh, in edward dc's book he talks about a couple of different studies where they looked at creative output um, in kids and adults um, who were being rewarded for their creative output or in some sort of competition or some control had been placed over their creative output and it undermines creativity. So those music and math, or those music and, and art teachers that have to use grades, they're in a really difficult place because um, if the very way they evaluate creative output undermines creative output, they're in a horrible catch-22. Yeah. And so what, do you have an example of a, a way, instead of doing something like a sticker chart, which is something we've commonly seen as ways to try to help right. our kids stay in yeah. the rooms at night or sleep or whatever, instead mm -hmm. of using that, what, what's mm -hmm. a good way to, to get them intrinsically motivated? So, you know, there, you got to take apart what's on the sticker chart. I mean, because the approach is different based on what it is. If it's household duties, you know, if it's, get, you know, first of all, no paying kids for doing stuff around the house that um, you, we had talked very briefly before we went on air about books around finance and kids and teaching kids about money. Um, Ron Lieber, who is the Your Money columnist for the New York Times, uh, his book, The Opposite of Spoiled, is magnificent. It is such a great book about um, that intersection between finance and money and budgeting, teaching kids about personal finance and the intrinsic extrinsic motivation stuff and how to get kids really engaged. Um, so if it's about something like household duties, you know, the attitude should be that we all do these things because we're all part of the family. And the research there is that kids actually, especially during times like this, like this COVID pandemic, Kids who have a hand in keeping the family running, whether that's just putting their dishes in the dishwasher if they're a really little kid, or keeping their room clean if that's something that matters to you, um, or just doing little things around the house, kids who feel like they have been a part, playing a part in, um, in keeping the household running actually suffer fewer um, mental health issues, negative mental health effects from the bad stuff that happens, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a divorce, whether it's a death in the family, whatever that thing is. So there's a couple of different research studies on that. Um, so coming at it from that attitude of, you know, what would you like your job to be? And here's what your job, and if whatever that thing is, it's gonna be your job for the next six months or three months or whatever. So there's ways to go at that. Um, there is an exception, by the way, while, I, while we're talking sticker charts. Um, the exception 
So sticker charts don't work for the long term. They seem like they work. They are so sneaky because they really do work in the short term. And they're a great way to boost, like extrinsic motivators are a great way to boost motivation for the short term or like as a one-off, they're great. The one exception to that rule though is potty training because potty training <laughs> does have its own intrinsic reward, which is not wearing diapers anymore, wearing big kid pants, whatever that thing is. Um, that does have its own reward at the end. So, you know, sticker chart away for, for, for that. Yeah, that's, sometimes there's that's exception. what you want. Yeah. But um, getting kids interested in doing the thing for the sake of the thing itself, which means you might have to give them more choice on the front end. Um, and intrinsic motivation comes from boosting their giving them more choice or autonomy. So how they do it, in what order they do it, you know, if you feel really, really strongly that dishes should be oriented north, south, and you're doing it east, they're doing it east, west, maybe just cut them a break. Um, number two, helping them feel competent, which means that they can do it. Um, even if things go wrong, they're going to be able to figure out ways to do it and that they feel connected to you, that you're supporting them even if they do it wrong. So those three things are sort of what get kids um, invested. And, and in the book, like I'm giving you big picture stuff here, but in the yep. book, there's like lists of tips. Like here's all the things you can expect a six-year-old to be able to do around the house. And here's some strategies to how to get them to do it. And that was the really fun part was breaking down yep. what kids really can do. And our expectations tend to be so low for them. It's really crazy. Yeah, that was one of the things I, I think like my biggest takeaways is that we um, underestimate or undermine yeah. our kids. We don't, yeah. we don't think that we don't give them enough credit for what they can actually achieve. And it's like, we, uh, we limit them for almost our own selfish reasons or whatever. Yeah. And so they can, they can do a lot more than we give them we give them credit for. And so it's just faster if we do it, right? And it's just easier I, if we do it. But someone sent me a video once. It was one of my favorite things that I've ever gotten in the mail. And it was a little boy who wanted to help with the, the laundry. He wanted to help so desperately. And so he was like a big, he wasn't quite a toddler. He was bigger than a toddler, but his toddler little sister was nearby. And so he was reaching in. It was a top loading washer. Don't worry. There was an adult right there. It was very safe. <laughs> and he told his little sister, he said, I'm going to crawl in here with the top of my body. And if I can't get out, you have to pull on my legs to help me get out. And so he would fish around in there and get the wet clothes. And he's like, pull me out. And his little toddler sister would pull on his leg and help pull him back out of the washing machine. And then he put the thing in the dryer. It was one of the coolest things because you would have looked at that kid and said, first of all, he can't reach up there on his own. There's no way these two little kids are going to do it. And they did it. They figured out a way to do it on their own. It was so cool. So this is a good segue. You said um, it, it's faster if we do it ourselves, right? You shared a story in that key, in the 2019 keynote, yeah. and we'll link to this in the, um, in the show notes, uh, about how your son was too embarrassed at one point to tie his shoes in yeah. school, which caused him to skip PT, um, uh, yeah, PT or am I? Phys ed, uh, PE. Physical, I call yeah, it PT for the military. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> physical education, um, PE, I'm sorry, PE, yeah. there we go. Uh, I got mixed up there and I was like, wait a second, that's not right. Um, can you share that story? Because this, I find sure. myself also doing this. It, it actually, there's even more to the story that's in the book because it, it sort of led to some really cool things that happened after the book came out. So Finn um, was nine at the time and uh, go to, I, we lived in New Hampshire at the time and 
which will come up and be relevant in a moment. And uh, so he, I got a note, I, he was going to the same school where I taught, which is good in some ways and horrifying for him in other ways. And so I, I found out that he was not able to go to PE. He was having to sit it out because he was wearing his brother's like big tall boots and didn't have sneakers. But I knew he had sneakers because I had bought them. Um, it turns out that the sneakers that he had had laces in them and he lost his Velcro sneakers and he couldn't use the sneakers with the laces because he didn't, he had never revealed this to me. I guess I'd never thought about it. He didn't know how to tie his own shoes. And, you know, at that point, he's old enough that it's embarrassing. He doesn't want anyone to know. He doesn't want to tell me why he can't wear the sneakers. And it was a whole thing. And, um, you know, that that sneaker thing came at a really opportune moment because I was really angry at the parents of my students for, um, for just doing too much for their kids. And I was on a super very high horse, you know, at that time. And so it was a really good moment for sort of my, to realize that this is what I'm doing too. And so that's what sort of led to this book and, you know, various things were coming up that, um, that I realized he was going to have to be a lot more competent than I had allowed him to be. And, you know, that, that was that moment of humility where I said, you know, I can't really be angry at the parents of my students for overparenting because I'm doing the exact same thing for my own kid. And that's when it really became urgent for me that I had to figure out not only how overparenting contributes to learned helplessness and, um, but not only that, how it contributes to learning. Like, are we really messing kids learning up when we overparent? And it turns out, yes, we are. Um, and I just split an infinitive. Anyway, but it turns out that we are really messing around with kids' ability to learn when we do too much for them. And there's really great research on that as well. It turns out that the most powerful teaching tools I have as a teacher work best for kids who are capable of feeling a little bit frustrated and sort of sitting with that feeling for a little bit. And kids that can't, who are typically tends to kids that tend to be overparented, um, are much more likely to give up and just abandon the effort of a difficult task right off the bat. So the research, putting all that research together is sort of the fun part of writing a book like this is, is you know, putting, tying the pieces, you know, to, to overdo the metaphor of the shoe tying, putting, all, tying all the pieces together and allowing someone to see a big picture of how the research actually applies to our own kids learning. Aside from, and maybe this is how we, we learn and realize this, but without something like that happening, if, if we don't have that happen, what are some signs that I can look and I'll just put it in my own terms that I can look mm -hmm. for um, in my son or our daughter that mm -hmm. that might indicate that we're over over parenting? Like, is there anything to just look for? Is it like kids give up early on stuff or is that? Yeah, that's a So it turns out when you're what's over parenting, let's use a more technical term. If you're over directive, if you're overly directive, which means like you tell your kid, okay, now do this. Okay, now do this. And don't give them that moment to sort of think for themselves about what the next step might be. Um, that overly directive parenting um, tends to lead to kids just being really quick to give up really quick to sort of throw their hands up in the air and say, that's it. I'm never, ever going to tie my shoes ever because there's no way I can do it. I'm too dumb, blah, blah, blah. It also leads to um, really heightened anxiety. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of really great writers writing right now, Lisa Damore and Julie Lithcott-Hames and a whole bunch of wonderful writers talking about how much anxiety we're currently seeing in kids. And it's really through the roof. And a lot of that anxiety comes from this need to be perfect, that if you can't do it perfectly, the first time you 
you try, then you're stupid, or then it's just too hard for you. And um, that overly anxious thing and the sort of willing, the, the tendency to give up really quickly, all of that can be fixed actually fairly easily if you're willing to pay a lot more attention to the process of learning and um, take your drag your attention away from the end product, drag your attention away from needing to know what the grade is on everything and how everyone else is doing. Because our kids right now don't really believe us when we say, oh, you know, the grade doesn't matter. All I care about is the learning because what we're showing them is what I really care about is that grade. So if we can focus more on the process and less on the product, we can lower anxiety, we can lower competition, we can also help kids just feel more comfortable with frustration and therefore help them feel more competent through learning, with their learning. Um, one of the things we like to talk about is, is just the idea of getting our kids interested mm-hmm. in finance and investing. And so you mentioned the book, um, Opposite of Spoiled, but do you have just a few ways, you know, one of the, the challenging things with money is it's a boring mm-hmm. topic, right? So it's hard to- No one teaches it. No one teaches yeah. it to children. It's, it's bananas. Like, yeah. uh, believe me, I'm out there advocating for personal finance. In fact, my kid is this year enrolled in both personal finance and business ethics, which we're super excited about. Um, you know, Ron Lieber and I talk about this all the time. Oh my gosh, where are they going to learn personal finance if not in school or from us? So I'm so glad you're talking about this. Yeah. Well, how do we keep kids- and we'll go with um, probably, I don't know, middle school to, mm-hmm. to high school aged kids. Mm-hmm. How do we start to have those discussions with them and not just completely lose them? Maybe just a, yeah. a couple ways. I mean, the, the basic stuff is number one, no paying for um, chores or I call them household duties because who wants to do something called a chore? It just sounds terrible. But allowance is very much a part of teaching kids about money, right? And if you read, there's a fantastic book. So not only is Ron Lieber's book wonderful and really outlines for you how exactly you do that, how you help kids get a budget. Um, he has great sections in there on like back to school clothes buying, which things are wants and which things are needs and how do you budget for the wants as opposed to the needs. Um, You know, and it's the front of the book. I'm not sure if the paperback still does, but you know, it has the three jars, the spend, save and give, and that stuff's all important too. But understanding that we give kids an allowance because we, they need a place to learn about money and they need to learn about, you know, generosity and they need to learn about, um, you know, how they manage that money. And that's really, really, important, but that's not tied to contributions around the house. Um, Often in our house, actually, if kids really want to save up for something, I'll come up with, you know, I can come up with jobs extra and above jobs that they're in charge of, and, and they can earn extra money for things like that. But the basic stuff is what you do as part of a family. So I recommend Ron's book. There's also another um, book called by a woman named Vicki Hofle, H-O-E-F-L-E, called duct tape parenting. She's hardline because her rule is every year after age 12, they get a weekly, let's see, they get a weekly allowance. Okay. I'm sorry. Up until 12, they get a weekly allowance. That's the uh, dollars for the number of years they are. So six-year-old gets $6 a week, blah, 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 up to age 12, at which point you start cutting it in half because kids should be able to get little, you know, fine little jobs to do and stuff like that. And I will say it is much harder for kids to get jobs now. Um, My 16-year-old has, when he first went out looking for jobs, it was really, really hard. So, you know, because there's such 
due to liability stuff like you know one place said we'd love to hire you but we can't you can't even run the the uh vacuum cleaner because that's seen as a piece of machinery i mean it was just bonkers but her hard line is is really and then if they when they get a car they have to pay for it themselves they have to pay for their insurance themselves um you know I think all of those things, there's somewhere in there is your sweet spot as a family, whether it's Vicki Hofless side or it's, you know, all the way over to Ron Lieber's and my side, which is a combination of the two. Um, you know, my 20, 21 year old is in college and he pays for certain aspects of his life. And um, it, you know, the nice thing about that is those things mean a lot much more, a lot more to him because he has a job and he's earning money and that's his money to either save or use accordingly. So, you know, using the budgeting stuff for the financial discussions. And, and I remember at one point, my 20, I think he was like 18 at the time or 17 at the time, we were talking about investing for retirement. And the and I was explaining compound interest to him because, you know, <laughs> teenage years are a great time to explain compound interest. And I was, I did the classic example of here's what it looks like if you save, you know, $10 a week now versus $10 a week when you're 30. And my son looked at me and he said, how are people supposed to learn this stuff? And I said, this conversation right here. And that's only because yeah. I know the tiniest bit about it. We really need to be teaching personal finance in school. And I find it horrifying that we don't. So I'm yeah. constantly lobbying for that. Okay. So we'll link, we'll link to those books, Duct Tape Parenting and The Opposite of Spoiled. Okay. Yeah. I've got one last question for you. Yeah. And I didn't prep you for this. So I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. Okay. You, Hit me. What's something that you've changed your mind about lately? Oh, a lot of things. Um, I So as a journalist, there's a lot of learning I've had to do on the national stage, which is, a, you know, a, it's I, my learn, my thinking has evolved over a long period of time around homework, around dress codes. Dress codes is the big one. Um, I worked at a school for a long time that had dress codes and I was so... Um, invested in that school policy and being a member of that team that I was overlooking what it was, how it was affecting, especially the girls that I was having to enforce the dress code with. So I actually have written an entire piece on why I enforce middle school dress codes. And it's a piece that I wish would, I could make go away, but I can't. I mean, the, you know, the publication I wrote it for would have to issue like a retraction or something, but when you're doing your learning on a national stage like that, uh, I definitely, I, I did a big 180 on homework, uh, most homework, dress codes, um, you know, school time starts, uh, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics says that school shouldn't start any earlier than 830 because for teenagers because of sleep phase delay, there's a whole bunch of stuff I've changed my mind on. And that's the best part of being in a position where I can say here publicly, yeah, I had this one opinion and then I learned some more stuff and my opinion has evolved. And that's the very thing I'm asking my children to do, which is to not be ashamed and deny the fact that they ever had that opinion at one point. It's to say, look, I took this learning and I used it to have a now a more evolved opinion. Isn't that a good thing? And that's what we should be modeling for our kids all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great answer. And I think a great place to end so jessica thank you so much for your time i really enjoyed so talking i enjoy welcome. enjoy following you um you i didn't mention this but you are the co-host of a podcast so if anybody wants to yep. find find you on on the internet you can go uh, it's the hashtag am writing 
podcast. All things um, writing. Yeah, I'm, my co-hosts are actually my former New York Times editor and uh, best-selling uh, romance author, Serena Bowen. We have a lot of fun over there. You had the author of... It's totally slipped my mind, but she learned, um, she became a poker player. Oh, Maria uh, Konnikova. It's called The yes. Biggest Bluff. And Maria Konnikova was a former staff writer for The New Yorker. And she took a step, uh, took leave in order to uh, become a professional poker player. And she became so good that suddenly she had this book, like three quarters written, but it couldn't, she couldn't just get it out there. Cause like she hadn't realized just how good she was going to get. So yeah, it's a fantastic book. It's a wonderful yeah. book. Yeah, and a bunch of other good good blocks. talks, and and so uh, again, we can we can find Jessica at uh, jessicalehi.com. Uh, her books, um, The Gift of Failure, and coming out April 2021, The Addiction Inoculation. I'm excited for that. I want to. It's. I think that's definitely a series of topics that's more important now, probably than ever before. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I can't wait. By the way, all the books I've mentioned, if you go to jessicalehi.com under speaking, there's a big button that says download speaking bibliography. And it's like three or four pages of just my greatest hits stuff that I recommend the most on a, a whole variety of topics. So any of the books I've mentioned will definitely be there. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jessica. I really appreciate your time. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Of course. And we're here to empower you to invest in your future. Thanks for listening, everybody. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.